Hello and welcome to this Lloyd's List podcast. My name is Richard Clayton. I'm the chief correspondent at Lloyd's List. Today, in the first of three podcasts with guests from DNVGL, we'll be assessing the path to decarbonisation. Now, shipping's obligation to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases has not been derailed by the coronavirus epidemic, but the industry can be forgiven for shifting its short-term focus onto the need to secure revenue streams and to control costs. So where are we on the journey to decarbonisation? Where are the pain points and what are the next steps that we should expect? My guests today are Eric Neuhus, Director Environment, and Tore Longva, Principal Consultant. Both are graduates of the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and both have spent many years at Det Norske Veritas and then at DNVGL, researching shipping's move into greener solutions. So, Eric, let me begin with you. Um, how far down the road to decarbonisation does shipping stand in mid-2020? It's a good question. Um, I think a lot dep- depends on your perspective. Um, from our perspective, who've been in, in this game for a while, I, I would say that shipping now is on the cusp of getting, seeing a significant ramping up of the, its decarbonisation efforts. Uh, we have a hard-fought greenhouse gas um, strategy uh, with uh, uh, ambitions established at the IMO. Um, strategy and ambitions by themselves don't get you anywhere, but uh, when that starts to be implemented into actual regulations, actual policy measures, then the ball is forced to start rolling. And I think that is what we are seeing now, because we do have uh, a reasonable consensus, it seems, um, at the IMO amongst stakeholders, both in industry and government, that there is certainly a need to move forward. We are uh, we are beyond uh, the part with uh, the time where we had dead enders who wanted essentially nothing to happen and fought to make sure that the world stayed unchanged. There is a recognition that the world really is changing now. And we're on the cusp of seeing that uh, starting to happen, I believe. So IMO has agreed a strategy with goals and targets for decarbonisation. What are the obstacles that you see towards achieving these things? Well, I can I can pitch it on that. Um, hmm. I think that the short-term ambitions um, in 2030 with the 40% reduction, they can be uh, reached by the non-technologies, the energy efficiency technologies by speed reduction. Um, so it's more of a question of implementing these, uh, having policies, uh, incentives in place so that the industry takes up the solution and, and works. It's, it's not a easy goal uh, by no means, but we know how to get there. Although it, it will probably be, be uh, there will be some pain to, to reach those. But we cannot um, forget to look beyond the 2030 uh, and, and to 2050 because that's um, that's when the big shift needs to take place and, and that's um, that's the fuel shift. Energy efficiency, it's um, well and good, but you need energy to propel the ship 
So, um, and that energy needs to come from somewhere. And the problem, we don't know uh, what fuel will be the best. It's we for certain have many options, but it's um, they all have some very big drawbacks. They are not mature, or they have uh, safety issues, um, or they have uh, production issues, availability issues. So we need some years to figure that out. And it's um, it's kind of a balance between running for one solution and and risk having a dead end there, or spending too much time on finding the best solution. Uh, so we cannot let uh, the best be the enemy of the good either. So again, uh, that's where the silver bullet comes from. I don't think there is any any silver bullet. We need time and we need to collaborate uh, over over many years to, to figure this out. And we need to address all the barriers that we see. Uh, safety, uh, production emissions, uh, sustainability, price availability. Yeah, many things that we... Um, <laughs> many things that needs to be addressed uh, systematically. If I may also add very quickly to that, um, I, I would also say that be, be seeing the regulatory part moving, seeing all these technological discussions and solutions starting to bubble up, I think we are uh, entering um, a time of trials, if it were a pun maybe intended. Um, but uh, it, it, in that we will be having multiple uh, solutions being tried out, uh, some that are suitable maybe only for local applications. Um, I think that uh, we will also be seeing uh, trials of what it, we, in hindsight, 20, 20, 30 years down the road, will see that, oh, maybe that was an obvious solution. How come we didn't see that? That when we were, when we were getting, starting off, right? Hindsight is always 2020. Um, so there, there, this will be a time of great experimentation, I believe, uh, and that will also, of course, create some winners and some losers in 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 the commercial space. Do you place your bets uh, in in the right place? So we're in 2020 and we're thinking about 2030 and then 2050. Is time on our side or is it actually a lot less time than we imagine? <laughs> well, I think that depends on who you are asking. Um, I think the urgency of climate change has been uh, more and more obvious to people the last year. So if you only go five years back, there was kind of a much more doubt about climate change, there were more concerns about uh, development, uh, and of course there, there are true dilemmas into this. Uh, I think um, getting people out of poverty has been been a focus, uh, developing um, nations have had that as a focus, So, but now um, the climate change becomes more urgent and uh, I'm personally I'm not um, seeing that time is uh, on our side, I don't think we can, can wait too long. But at the same time, I'm a technology optimist, so it's. I don't think it's kind of. Um, at some point, we will f will find a solution, and then I think things will go pretty quick. At least that's okay. my, my belief that I'm clinging to. <laughs> so um, the only rules that are currently in force around decarbonisation um, focus on EEDI and SEEMP. Um, I'm sure. Both of you could talk about all of these for the rest of the, the day. Um, can you just unpack what they are uh, and what are their strengths and their weaknesses? 
Yes, absolutely, and and you're right. We could uh, we could talk for this about days, and we have been talking about this for years. So it's, uh, it's a topic that we have uh, under our skin. So I think the first first of all the, the energy efficiency design index and the ship energy efficiency management plan, the EDI and SEMP for the for the insiders in the industry, uh, they are um, well known. They've been around for um, seven years now, or actually been known for almost ten. Um, and they know how to achieve the different uh, the EDI requirements and, and how to develop the SEMP. And, and that's kind of, um, yeah, it's um, well known to the industry. Um, what's also an advantage of the EDI is that some you, you can verify in advance. And uh, if you are not compliant, you, you can fix it and then you get the certificate, or well, at least in, in theory, uh, because it's based on the signed requirements, as opposed to what we probably will see in the future, more operational requirements. When you already have emitted something, it, it cannot be undone. So that's kind of the tricky part of, of moving forward. It's not suf uh, sufficient enough to on the look at the design side. Um, of course, the weakness of the, and, and this comes at a price. Uh, the reason why we need to look into the operational part is that the EDI doesn't address all solutions. Um, operational solutions like hull cleaning, voyage execution, uh, speed reduction to some, to some degree. Uh, it's also weak on some technical measures like uh, wind power and uh, wind assisted propulsion. Uh, so, so that's the price of having a simplified and, and kind of um, strong solution uh, for, for the design side. Um, and then now we need to move over to the to the operational side. So what what I've seen is I don't expect any much revision on the EDI. I think uh, the focus will be on the operational emissions. So tell me about EEXI. How how does that work, and how how can that be fed into the existing ships? Yeah, well, EDI is just uh, EDI with a new name applied for existing ships. So it's it's basically the same as EDI, but it has some simplification so that it can be applied for uh, already existing ships. For example, that you you do not need to do a new sea trial to calculate the ship speed. So, um, for all practical purposes, it's it's a design index for uh, existing ships, and I think one of the reasons this is um, on a on a kind of fast track is that it's well known. They know how the EDI works, and when they uh, see that the EXI works in the same way, okay, they know what to expect, and if they know what to expect, uh, things can go uh, pretty quickly in in shipping. Uh, so all everything from verification to to how you get the certificate and and what's the requirements, it's it's a very mature uh, proposal. And we've also been able to uh, address this uh, the problem of having underpowered ships. So now it's it's not a physical limitation on the engines anymore. We are looking into uh, an virtual power limit on the engine. So if there is an emergency, you will actually have the power available. And that's also gives confidence that the safety issue of, uh, of uh, more stringent environmental regulations are taken care of. Um, okay, um, Eric, if I can turn to you, because I want to look at this idea of um, the, the European Green Deal. So IMO is putting together regulations for a global industry. Does it, does it help or hinder uh, IMO's intentions if 
individual uh, states or groups of states come up with their own ideas? Well, it's a bit paradoxical, isn't it? Um, we, we, we have a number of uh, member states uh, at the IMO that uh, are all very happy with uh, uh, the role of international regulations, saying that uh, that is the preferred uh, outcome uh, and the way we want the world to move. Um, at the same time, uh, when you can, they turn right round, go back to their home countries and are, of course, subject to domestic and local political pressures that then drive the development of regional and local regulations. Regulations. Um, it, I think it's it's just a fact of life. It's something that is going to going to be there forever. We're seeing an uh, actually an increase in the trend. I would say towards more and more local regulations, regional regulations, and that is something that we will have for the foreseeable future. Uh, case in point, you mentioned the Green Deal. Uh, yes, Europe wants definitely to be uh, one of the uh, front runners when it comes to combating uh, climate change, um, and uh, uh, I, I think that. Uh, we at least we, we we do agree with the underlying rationale of the green deal in the sense that all sectors have to contribute everybody everybody has to do their part uh, what we also see of course is that this increases the political pressure on the imo to uh, to act quickly because it, as part of the Green Deal, there, there are some very clear statements that uh, there is a desire to see further action at the international level. So we, we hope that the pressures from Brussels will focus more on getting the right and timely action at the IMO in an international context than kind of letting the bigger world go and just focusing on uh, their the own um, Belgian or Brussels-ish issues. <laughs> if you will call it that. Uh, so getting uh, these domestic pressures, local pressures, regional pressures translated into action at the regional level, hopefully we will see a, a world where we will have international regulations mm -hmm. as an overarching framework and local regulations will be there, but that they will in a form that will be able to coexist with the international frameworks without causing too much disruption and complications. It, it may seem a bit naive, um, uh, but I, I would say that that is, uh, that is a hope. At the same time, we are, we are certainly realistic in the sense that uh, uh, th this is happening. This, the, there is it's uh, a juggernaut, I would say, that uh, cannot be turned. We will just have to deal with it as things move move along. Okay, fair enough. Um, we've, we've talked already about the alternative fuels and the different levels of maturity and the pace we're, we're moving towards them. Um, methanol, hydrogen, ammonia, biofuels. Now, as we're working towards understanding these uh, fuels a little more, have you noticed a shift um, in the focus from uh, carbon dioxide to a more broader um, emission of greenhouse gases? And, and how has that shift played out? Yes, it's um, both uh, actually, we've seen that uh, other greenhouse gases that CO2 has, has gotten attention. But um, a couple of weeks ago, we got the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study, which is kind of the 
reference study for uh, all emissions from uh, from shipping and um, and in there we can see the distribution of the different greenhouse gases and um, more than 90% uh, of the greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, are contributed by the CO2. Uh, methane is only on uh, on the third place with 0.5% of the total. And the second most uh, biggest contributor is, is actually black carbon. So um, both um, black carbon and methane has been, or to some degree is on the agenda. Black carbon is, um, is uh, has been there for many years, but I've been struggling with uh, how do we actually measure it and not to say how we actually control it. Methane has been put on agenda, but it hasn't you know, started yet. So the question is whether this uh, greenhouse gas study will um, accelerate energy development. And um, I'm gonna add, my take on this is that CO2 needs to be uh, the focus because it's more than 90%. Um, and then we see um, claims that uh, methane is also an important and could be more, com more important with, with uh, the introduction of LNG. And that's also reflected in the study that uh, methane emissions, although it was only 0.5%, it grew by more than 100% the last, uh, last eight years. But that is uh, due to the current engines, uh, uh, LNG-fueled uh, engines, they are uh, having a, a relatively high methane slip. But we do not expect that this will happen and, and for certain when they start being Im implemented on larger vessels, um, we will not see uh, methane as a significant uh, contribution. Doesn't, it doesn't uh, mean that we don't need to put attention on it because the technology development still needs to happen, uh, the engine manufacturers, but, but we see that they are actually doing so. So the question is whether uh, will the IMO and, and the community in general actually be okay with that or do they want to impose uh, direct regulations on methane uh, emissions? I, I won't rule that out that uh, you will kind of follow up with, with the specific regulation. So I think it needs attention and, uh, and also black carbon might get increased attention with this, uh, this study. So over the coming two or three years, Eric, um, you can see there will be a slight shift of emphasis, but the focus will still be on, on carbon. I would ex expect so, yes. I, uh, unsurprisingly, I fully agree with the Twitter on, on, on this, uh, partly because it is the CO2 is a predominant uh, greenhouse gas being emitted these days, and it will remain so for the foreseeable future. Uh, however, uh, there's also one other dimension to this that I think is also worth mentioning, and this is also something being discussed at the IMO, and that is uh, what kind of actual footprint do does individual fuels represent i.e uh, life cycle uh, perspectives on uh, production transportation distribution storage uh, of uh, relevant fuels uh, or rather fuels that are relevant for ships and it's a big and it's a complex discussion uh, and it is coming and, and that discussion also involves other types of emissions than just co2 um, methane is a very interesting case in point because when you look at what's happening in uh, the LNG or gas pipeline infrastructure in parts of the world, some in some places it's fairly decrepit and you are seeing significant leaks in connection with production and 
uh, transportation that significantly uh, exceed what we see being emitted uh, as methane slip for for shipping. So methane is a big global problem that needs to be dealt with, but it's a much bigger problem than what we're seeing coming from gas engines per se. Per se. Um, I, LCA is a hard nut to crack, but we, we will be working on it uh, over the next couple of years. I would expect to get some uh, fairly robust guidelines in place so that we can make sure that we actually choose the appropriate fuels for the vessels when we're looking at future solutions. Okay, thank you very much. So decarbonization is a long-term project, um, one that will be interrupted many times by short-term crises throughout the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s. So we'll invite you back again in 10 years time to update us on the progress that we've made. So Tora uh, Lungva, Eric Nohus, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for um, allowing us on board here. Um, look forward to talking to you in 10 years time. It'll be close to my retirement, but it would be great to have a recap. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> <laughs>